Friends, wow, lots of you here today, that's great, obviously half term is over. Um, friends, this week we are continuing looking at 1 Thessalonians, you've heard the passage um, uh, from Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, and last week of course was chapter 3, uh, which is kind of what I mean by we're working through this uh, letter to the church at Thessalonica. And uh, last week, Gene uh, James um, preached and uh, those of you here would have heard some fairly hard questions uh, in the midst of her preaching which included things like look around you how aware are you of how other Christians are growing in their faith would we necessarily notice if others were unsettled or struggling how is the state of your own faith is it under attack or are we growing daily how can we strengthen and encourage others undergoing trials are you pastoring someone else Is there someone you need to lend your support to, like buttressing on a cathedral? And these questions become, I think, more urgent as we move from chapter three to the first part of chapter four. So let me give you some highlights of topics of what we've just heard. Um, If we can get to the screen, which seems to be... um, No, we're looking for the PowerPoint, really. It'll come. So, um, our highlights over the first 13 verses um, cover uh, six different aspects. First of all, we're called to live for God, live for the one. Um, We're to become sanctified, and in the midst of that, sexual ethics matters. Um, Fourthly, we're to be holy. Um, We're to love um, love for fellow Christians, um, and how we love matters. Um, but equally how we live matters in terms of mission. And uh, that's, um, are we likely to get visuals? Yeah, okay, it's coming, fine. So that's where we're going, but equally, there's a whole second sermon out there in terms of the second half of uh, chapter four in terms of how the return of Jesus comes. So I will look at that, but it will be much more brief than the first half. So there we go, that's, that's where we're going uh, in terms of the, the kind of topics uh, for the first few, uh, the first half of the chapter. So let's dive in and look at the text. Jesus, uh, no, not Jesus, Paul wrote, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. So an inevitable first question is, how do you live, do you live to please God? Do you know how to live in order to please God? Jean said last week, how deeply do I long after God? To what lengths am I prepared to go in order to know him better? It's a quote from Selwyn Hughes. But are we, would, would Paul write the same to you? That you know how to live in order to please God and you're doing that. Paul, I think, begins to uh, remind them of some of those instructions that he gave them um, or underlines one or two of them. And the headline really is that, is that my computer doesn't like talking to the other computer, never mind, um, is, that we, is that it's God's will that we should be sanctified. Let's just turn it off, shall we? It doesn't offer that bit for now. Um, it's God's will, verse three, that you should be sanctified. Now, sanctified is one of those um, kind of Christian words, isn't it, that we sometimes struggle with. Um, We can probably just 
just about get justified. It's just as if I've never sinned. We, our sins are forgiven. But sanctification is about a growing sense of us becoming more mature as Christians, becoming more Christ-like, becoming um, not just sanctified, but also uh, not just justified, but also sanctified. And actually, it's hard work. Choosing to live to God's glory doesn't necessarily come easily. We all know that there are times when we'd much prefer to say something that just cuts somebody down than to build them up. And the way we say things matters. We'll come back to that in a minute. Let's go back to the... Oh, I haven't blanked it. I can't unblank it. I haven't joy today. Oh, well. It's, it's basically text you've got up that you would have. So having been told it's God's will that we should be sanctified, um, Paul then focuses in on one aspect of sanctification, which is about sexual ethics. Um, I'll, I'll read you verse three, the second half of verse three to six. Um, you should avoid sexual immorality, um, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. So holiness, sanctification, living to please God is, yes, is more than sexual ethics. Oh, well done. Thank you. It's more than sexual ethics, but Paul finds that he wants to underline that aspect of pleasing God. And maybe it was one of the more countercultural aspects of Christian faith for the readers of that letter, about AD 50, AD 51, but also helpful for us to be clear too. And there's, there's three parts to it, isn't there? There's the, the headline of avoiding sexual morality, there's the controlling your own body, and then um, not taking advantage or wronging um, somebody else. Um, and the culture that these guys lived in was very different. Here's a quote from um, some chap in the 4th century BC, which I know is 400 years before these, these, these would have had this, but this was this kind of culture that certainly for a wealthy man, um, there would have been still. Um, he runs like this. We keep mistresses for pleasure, concubines, concubines for our day-to-day bodily needs, but we have wives to produce legit- legitimate children and serve as trustworthy guardians of our homes. That's the kind of lifestyle that these guys were being called out of. Mistresses for pleasure, concubines for day-to-day bodily needs, wives to produce legitimate children. How different is that world? And clearly, the, I think by then, emerged Jewish norm of one husband and one wife was challenging for these new Christians and no sex outside of marriage, that was actually quite radical. And actually, in a sense, has become so again in our time. And God calls us to holiness, to living our lives fully aware that our bodies are temple of God's spirit. And that's why it's natural for Paul to go on and say, actually, God didn't call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, This is not really from Paul. This is not Paul writing, but actually it's the very God who gives his Holy Spirit that we're rejecting if we reject 
that kind of calling. So we're back to more general terms. God calls us to live a holy life. So how holy is your life? Remember, it's God who gives you his Holy Spirit. And actually, when we stop and think about it, that's not so radical. God, who is holy, calls us to be holy. Think of, say, um, Leviticus 11.44 or 1 Peter 1.16. Be holy because I am holy. That same holy God places his spirit in us who believe. That is, he places his Holy Spirit in us and calls us, challenges us to also be holy. That is to emulate God's ways. And clearly God doesn't lie. He doesn't gossip. He doesn't make false accusations. He doesn't make one-sided claims or bring up the bad past or twist things for personal gain. So neither should we. Instead, actually, God is loving. God loves us so much that he wants us to change for the better. And that's how we're to live. God is holy, so be holy. But that holiness flows into our relationships too. So actually we need to recognise that love for fellow Christians matters too. This is um, verse 9 and 10, despite the dot at the beginning there. Um, about your love for one another, we don't need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, in fact, you do love all of God's people throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brethren, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Now, love for one another. We've had that before, haven't we? Jesus. Jesus, chapter, John chapter 13 Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, said Jesus, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples, my followers, if you love one another. And clearly, again, love for one another doesn't come necessarily easily. But we are called to love each other. And this is in the context of the Christian, the community of faith. So we're called to be looking out for, for building each other up. We're not tearing each other down. We're, we're to include others in the community of faith without putting up somehow great barriers to that including. Like, I don't know, not bothering to talk to new people. Or in your conversations and socialising, not including those of different household shape. Or, or not including those of less or more income than you or those of a different skin tone to you. We're called to love one another. And that's different to accepting all behaviours. Because just as loving within a human family means that sometimes we challenge each other's behaviour if it's out of order, but we only challenge successfully because there's a strength of relationship, there's a relational bond on account of good times together, of serving one another, of listening to each other, of actually knowing that whoever's challenging that behaviour is really wanting the best for someone. We bother to challenge parents, if you're of parents of children, we bother to challenge children's behaviour because of our love for them. And it's the same that we're called to love each other and call each other, provoke one another to godliness. 
And provoking is not manipulation, is not control. If you want uh, an equivalent, Ephesians 4.15 has it, that we're to speak the truth in love. We'll grow, um, 4.15 runs like this, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So there's a sense in which you've got a parallel set of thinking here, that we're to become um, more holy, we've become sanctified, um, and in doing so, we, we, we love God, we love each other. And in Ephesians, we speak the truth in love, and we therefore, as we grow in maturity, maturity being around as an increasing sanctification. So Paul then moves the thinking from there to actually a recognition that the wider community is looking on. Paul says, make it your ambition, your aim, if you like, to lead a quiet life. That is that you should mind your own business and work with your hands. Now, let's start with mind your own business. Well, let's lead, lead a quiet life. We're not looking for applause from humans, but from God. We're to live for the one. Mind your own business, not gossip. Not gossip about others. Not to share for prayer. But does it need to be said? Some people use the filter, think. Is it true or helpful? Is it inspiring, necessary, kind? Certainly it helps in social media commentary. But um, in our own face-to-face speaking, perhaps that's a set of filters that we could put on our language. Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? Is it kind? We're called to work with your hands. Now, I just want to recognize that administration, computing needs hands too. I don't think we're looking at a manual stroke management divide here, but about working or not working, i.e. not being an idle busybody, and frankly, when you are at work, get on with it. Don't spend much of the time avoiding work and just talking with other workers. But equally, we have to recognize that the actions of a few can affect the reputation of the community, uh, in the community of the whole group. So that phrase about your daily life is about the, the community of believers, but the community is made up of many individuals. So the result, huh? our aim, lead a quiet life, mind your own business, work with your hands, The result then, verse 12, is so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. And, second result, that you will not be dependent on anyone. Uh, Not being dependent, let's just kind of unpack that a little bit. Remember the early church ran its own kind of welfare state, gave food to the poor, poor widows particularly, so for example, Acts 7, that crops up. Um, So those who could work but didn't were not going to starve But equally, there was huge potential for those who chose not to work to cause trouble as they gossiped their way from house to house and too were observed by the local population, actually, frankly, not doing ever so much, whereas they could have been economically active. 
So, questions again then. How is your way of life considered by your neighbours, by your not yet believing family or work colleagues? Do you have their respect? Or do you have their scorn when you're not looking? And do we need to change, therefore? And then, as you know, we have a bit of a gear change. I think it's the joys of a letter written in response to a visit report that there are, sometimes there are issues raised by people which don't always flow from one part of the letter to another part. So this is one of those slightly disjointed change of topics. But I think it also does link back in eventually. So you then move from verse 12 to verse 13, which is too small for you to read, um, which is all about the return of Jesus. When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. And the trump of God sounds. I can't quite remember all the rest of it, but anyway. Um, now, We could spend a lot of time comparing this with Daniel chapter 12, with Matthew 23, 24, with Revelation, and and compare and contrast the different views of what's going to happen when Jesus returns. However, I don't think that's terribly helpful today. I do think there are some headlines here, though, which is that those that are still on earth when Jesus returns we'll see the dead who have died in the faith of Christ rise ahead of the um, catching up into heaven of the then present population. So if you are lucky enough to be alive when Jesus returns, you will see some of your faithful relatives, some of your ex-church members, some of your Sunday school teachers, some of your covenanters leaders rise to be with Jesus before you are caught up in the air. And again, we could argue over the details. But I think there are some things for today that are really helpful. There you go, being caught up into heaven. And I've highlighted the the two bits I want to focus in at the beginning and the end of the description. The beginning starts, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Implication being is that we do have hope, friends. We have certainty, we who are of faith, we who have asked Jesus to be Lord of our lives, we in whom the Spirit resides, we have certainty that we will spend eternity with God in heaven. That is our hope. And our hope is based on Jesus being the first fruits of that resurrection. Jesus died and rose again. And that verse 14, so we believe that God will bring Jesus with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep in him. Because we believe in the resurrection of the dead, because we can see, we have, have that understanding that Jesus died and rose again, we have hope and we have hope for ourselves that we too will rise again. Is that good hope? Oh, good. Most of you are still awake. That's good. Okay. And so, 
verse 17, we will be with the Lord forever. No ifs, no buts, no maybes, no if we've been good enoughs, but a certainty that because we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we will be with the Lord forever. Alleluia. No wonder Paul ends. Therefore, encourage one another. It's me, don't worry, Adele. <laughs> encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another. This is great news, friends. We are unlike the rest of the population who think we die and are turned into worms or eaten up by worms or something like that. There, that's it. <laughs> eaten up by worms. We do have hope. And that hope is not some vague hope. It's a hope because we know that Jesus died and rose again. So we are called to encourage one another. And since this life is not all that there is, this life then is, does have some consequences to that. Because in this life, this is our only opportunity in this this life is our only opportunity for mission, for evangelization, and this life is our only option for sanctification before heaven. So unless it's going to be a huge shock to your soul, could I encourage you to live for the one, to become sanctified, to recognize that sexual ethics matters, to be holy, to love your fellow Christians, and recognize that how we love, how we live, will, will affect our reputation in the community. So will heaven be full of your acquaintances and friends and family? We hope so, but what are you doing about it? Are we a group that others want to join? Do we have the respect of outsiders by how we live, both as individuals and as a community? I suspect, as always, we need to say we could all do better. Have we really learnt to listen to each other, to love each other? Do we fully live fully in response to the spirit that is holy and resides within you? Now, if you're still on the verge of faith, on the edge of faith, then I want to encourage you to jump in and know the joys of the loving, forgiving, life-changing love of God who gives us all hope, meaning, and purpose in this life and for all eternity. And don't for a moment think you're too broken. God uses broken things. It takes broken soil to produce a crop, broken clouds to give rain, broken grains to give bread, broken bread to give strength. For those of you who don't know him, Vance Havner was a 20th century American evangelist, um, died in 1986 or something like that. But don't for a moment think you're too broken for God. He loves us, he cares for us, he wants us to grow in our response to him, in our love for him. And he would desires to put his spirit in us guaranteeing that future of eternity with God in heaven let's take a moment to pray friends Father
We ask at the start that you would be clearly with us by your spirit. Father, we ask that by your spirit you would pinpoint in each of us your challenge for this day. How you want us to change. What aspect of our lives need to be transformed by your love. And Father, we ask that you'd give us courage not just to think about change, but to actually change. Amen. Thank you, Martin. We are called to live in the light of...